Extraordinary Districts, Season 5, Where Are All Those Dollars Going? Episode 3, Leading the Way. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe all children deserve a great education and work to ensure they get it. This is Episode 3 of the fifth season of Extraordinary Districts. We are looking at how schools and districts are using $190 billion in federal money that went to help them cope with the effects of COVID. Many educators call them ESSER funds, an acronym for Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Funds. In episode one and two, we heard that schools, districts, and states are using ESSER money in a lot of different ways, making schools safe, tutoring, hiring more staff, buying new curricula, and paying for training. We heard from educators about the responsibility they feel to make sure that the money they have gotten will pay dividends for years to come. In this episode, we're going to hear from more folks about how they are using those funds to improve schools both right now and in the future. We left off episode two right after Tyra Harrison from Richmond City, Virginia, said that Richmond was using federal COVID money not only to train teachers in the city's new reading curriculum, but also principals. People outside the education world may not realize that principals are often an afterthought in terms of curriculum and instruction. Principals might listen to sales pitches from publishers, but they often don't participate in the professional learning that is needed for teachers to understand and teach curricula. And that means that they often aren't fully versed in what teachers are learning and what teachers might need in order to teach well. This question is worth spending some time on, and to talk about it, I went to someone who has spent years thinking about this issue. Jackie Wilson, and I'm the director of the Delaware Academy for School Leadership, which is a professional development policy and research center in the College of Education in human development at the University of Delaware. And I also serve as the executive director of the National Policy Board for Educational Administration, which holds the rights to the professional standards uh, for school leaders. What we know is, is that districts every day buy programs and they put those programs in school improvement plans to, in the hopes that they're going to improve uh, outcomes for kids. And in many times, those programs are not as successful as they had hoped they would be. And I think what we have been trying to educate our different uh, partners and stakeholders is, is that your best investment is in your talent, in your people. And the new report from Jason Grissom was just what we all needed. She's talking about a recent synthesis of research on the importance of principles to student achievement by scholars Jason Grissom, Anna Egalite, and Constance Lindsay. By the way, it was funded by the Wallace Foundation, which also provided funding for this podcast. And the new report from Jason Grissom was just what we all needed, which gave us two decades of research on the impact an effective principal can have on a school. That if you replace a principal or train up 
a principal who's about a 25% effectiveness with a principal who's working at a 75% effectiveness, then you get a 4% gain in reading and math. There's very few programs you can purchase that are going to give you those kinds of gains over time. Jackie Wilson is reflecting on some hard-won knowledge that has been developed over the past couple of decades in the field of education. Enormous amounts of energy has been spent developing programs that will improve academic achievement, math programs, reading programs, all kinds of programs, and some of them are really good. But a program that shows good success in one place often has disappointing results in another. What Ms. Wilson is saying is that programs are only as good as the educators using them. And that doesn't just mean teachers. It means principals and district leaders who set the conditions under which teachers work. She's been working for years to help Delaware think about how it develops and supports school leaders. And the new federal ESSER funds have provided a way to pay for some of that. Congress required states to pass along most of the ESSER funds to districts, but allowed the states to keep some of the money for statewide initiatives. I think what the department has realized is that by investing their funds in this way, they're going to have a huge impact on the quality of leader that's in those schools and their ability to work with teachers in a way that they're retaining teachers and focusing on those school improvement initiatives in a coordinated way. I talked with two of the key state leaders who worked on developing the principal preparation pipeline. I am Susan Bunting, and I just finished uh, almost a five-year span of service at the Department of Education as the Secretary of Education. I'm Michael Saylor. I'm also at the Delaware Department of Education, where I am an education associate for leading school leadership initiatives throughout the state. I first met Dr. Bunting when she was superintendent of Indian River, one of Delaware's 19 school districts. I wrote about the ways she was developing school leaders within her district in my 2017 book, Schools That Succeed. I asked her why she thought it was important to use ESSER dollars to provide training to principals and aspiring principals. I have seen it. I'm a believer. I have seen the training translate into very beneficial changes for students and long ago abandoned the idea that the principal needed to be a manager of the building. The teachers would take care of everything else. That principal must be a learning leader and it must be something that translates into a culture of learning for that whole school. Thank heavens that was happening because otherwise all of the involvement with health issues and so forth could have subterfuges. It could have it, it could have torpedoed all of our efforts to help kids learn. But our building leaders had been through some of these programs and they were determined that the kids had to continue to learn despite all the other things they were dealing with. If we've ever needed learning leaders at the helm of our buildings. We need them now because that has to be a priority. And of course, now we're taking a look at the lost instructional time and we need to accelerate the learning to get our students back on an even keel. 
Our fifth graders need to be doing fifth grade work and they need the foundation to be successful at fifth grade level. And that is true of every grade level from pre-K on up. We need to be able to fill in the gaps, analyze where we are, move our staff members on. I have seen the results of programs like this when I came to the department. Thank heavens we had things, our wheels in motion to train other principals and uh, assistant principals and our superintendents to be more and more the learning leaders of their organizations. And that started um, at the state level before we got into this new COVID crisis situation. But it became super important. And when we had extra money to invest in it, it just seemed the right thing to do. What they're getting is not what you get in the college courses that are required to get the credentialing done for positions. It's the extra on-the-job field experience that no one can teach you in a college classroom. There are several parts to the leadership work Delaware is doing. There's a superintendent study council where district superintendents meet at the University of Delaware once a month to discuss the latest research and talk about how they are solving their shared problems. There's ongoing professional learning for principals as well. But Delaware is facing a serious problem. In the next five years, 40% of its principals and assistant principals will be eligible to retire. And the last two years of pandemic has been a strain. Here's Dr. Bunting again. I didn't stop visiting schools. Uh, I was up and down the state visiting classrooms, talking with principals, looking for pandemic positives, as well as some of the struggles they were going through. They definitely have felt supported. They have been challenged by the nuances, the hurdles that have been presented by COVID, but together they have worked their ways through it. We, we've worked closely with our superintendents, who then worked very closely with their building principals. The additional weight of being so concerned about our students and their education has translated into our principals and our staff members being weary, more weary than usual. They've done it, and they've done it with smiles and hope and determination, but I do note that there is a uh, weariness that I can see in our principals at this point. So one of the major parts of Delaware's efforts is working with current assistant principals to prepare them to take up the principal role. I asked Michael Saylor to describe what the state is doing. So we have a year one induction program that is required of all new administrators. We have a year two induction program, which is a coaching model that is not required, but about 50% of our new leaders continue into that program. And then when they reach the third year, they can be recommended by their head of school or their superintendent to participate as a fellow in the AP Academy. As I mentioned, they meet monthly and it's a hybrid model. They also have a mentor back in their district or charter. And that mentor is somebody that they spend two to three days a month with. It is a highly effective principle that the superintendent or head of school has also identified. And truly, it's for them to prepare for the principalship. So these are APs that are the best of the best. They've been recommended in this program because they, the uh, head of school or superintendent believes that they will be in a principalship within the near future. All of the programming is aligned to 
our leadership standards in Delaware, which are the professional standards for educational leaders. And then the sessions are led by researchers from the university paired with a practitioner. So the practitioner could be a current practitioner, a retired practitioner, somebody that works for the University of Delaware in their school leadership academy. And they will take a piece of research, unpack it, and apply it to schools today. Assistant principals are the obvious place to look for future principals, but that's not where this process stops. Part of Michael Saylor's job is working with local school districts and charter organizations to develop a pipeline of leadership among teachers, some of whom will want to become assistant principals. Just a warning about an acronym, he will use the term LEA, which stands for Local Educational Agency. That means either traditional school districts or charter organizations. How do I identify aspiring leaders? What does teacher leadership look like? Because teacher leadership leads to retention of teachers, as well as retention of leaders because of the opportunities for shared leadership. Being a principal is a lot of responsibility. If you can have teacher leaders to help support that work, you're going to put better systems and structures in place. And then uh, looking at the hiring and selective process, selection process of our leaders is part of that pipeline. How do you onboard them? How do you then continue to invest in their growth so that they stay with you? And then how do you identify what their next steps are? Do they want to stay at a building level or are they aspiring for district leadership and beyond? It's been a tremendous opportunity for those LEAs to really look at their plans for how they're going to be addressing this turnover. Now, of course, Delaware is using its ESSER money in all kinds of ways. In episode one, we heard how C for Delaware is using a lot of its money to make sure its aged school buildings are made safe. And districts throughout the state are using the money for summer school, tutoring, all kinds of things. Leadership development is just one piece of what it's doing. But there's a lot of talk about the fact that the field of education may be facing labor shortages in the future. By identifying and supporting leaders who understand how to support teachers and other school staff, Delaware is trying to fend that issue off. Over time, we'll see if they're successful, because Jackie Wilson told me one other thing that made me really happy to hear. We need to be evaluating everything we do. It's great to say it's working, everybody's happy, everybody loves what we're doing, but is it having an impact? And so all our programs now have an evaluation portion built into them. We work with uh, researchers from the University of Delaware uh, who really attend our sessions, interview, uh, do uh, surveys to begin to evaluate current programs. As I said in episode two, far too often in the field of education, there's not a rigorous evaluation process, which means that mistakes are not caught and corrected before they do too much harm. By putting their programs under a microscope, Delaware is trying to ensure that what they are doing is working to ensure that schools have leaders who understand the job and can lead improvement. Next door to Delaware, Maryland's also doing something interesting with its ESSER money. My name is Mohammed Choudhury, State Superintendent of Schools of Maryland. 
Superintendent Chowdhury has been state superintendent for less than a year, but he says he is determined to push Maryland's 24 school districts to improve, and he's using ESSER funds to nudge them in the direction he thinks they should go. And there are many aspects of education where the science is strong, right? Um, and we, it's not always just an art. There is a science to learning. There's a science to brain development. There's a science in how we uh, differentiate. There's a science to how we teach reading. Um, and it's settled science, frankly. Um, and it's the responsibility of the education department, um, the state education department, to make sure that such things are being reinforced, both through policy conditions, grant making, as well as, you know, professional development opportunities uh, that, the, uh, that the department offers. It needed to be a balance around both responding to the needs of the current time. Um, and so, you know, there are uh, issues and challenges related to mental health, issues related to staffing, um, uh, both on the retention side of your existing staff, as well as uh, being able to have a deep pipeline of new staff and then uh, balancing the needs of the time with also just tried and true things that are not happening at scale and effectively. He's using the state's ESSER funds to finance what he has called a choose-your-own-adventure for Maryland's districts. We came up with Maryland Leads, and that is what the grant initiative is called. And it essentially is one super app concept. You submit one application and enables you to access funding. And it's about $150 million in total that enables you as a school system to access funding to support initiatives that have to fall within seven big buckets or seven high leverage strategies, as I call it. And again, those strategies were designed both to respond to the needs of the time, but also uh, things that are tried and true that need to happen uh, more effectively and also thinking about preparing for future needs as well. And so we have seven high leverage strategies um, and those strategies uh, have been proven uh, to be effective and transformative for our schools across the country. And those strategies are grow your own staff, staff support and retention, the science of reading, high quality school day tutoring, reimagining the use of time, innovative school models, and transforming neighborhoods through excellent community schools. And underneath all of those seven strategies are focus areas. Um, and for some of the strategies, you have to do all of the focus areas if you're going to pursue that strategy. And for other strategies, you can choose which focus area you want to do. For like, for example, in the innovative school model, we are prioritizing um, an expansion of, of, of CTE-focused uh, high schools that prioritize apprenticeships. By CTE, he means career technical education. We are also prioritizing the expansion of early college or middle college um, dual credit uh, um, um, uh, high school models. And then the third focus area is uh, uh, launching a, a transformation initiative for your low performing school in your system, because we should always be obsessing about not having any low performing schools. So those are the three focus areas in the innovative schools model and school systems can pick one of three. Um, and, and those things are, um, um, uh, they don't have to do all three. Superintendent Chowdhury has been rather frustrated by the fact that many of Maryland's school districts have not incorporated evidence-based practices in reading instruction. 
To understand what I mean by that, you might want to listen to some episodes from Season 4 of Extraordinary Districts on Reading Instruction I did with my colleague, Tanji Reed Marshall. I'll put the links in the show notes. One example of a district not following what we know about reading instruction is Montgomery County, where I live. A few years ago, an audit by Johns Hopkins University and Student Achievement Partners said that Montgomery County Public Schools had, quote, no systematic support for the development of foundational skills in reading. So one of the seven approaches Superintendent Chowdhury is funding is what he calls science of reading, which has become a popular term. If districts apply for the money to pursue this, he is requiring that they do all components of it. If you're going to pursue this strategy, you have to do all of them. Um, so, and the focus areas are everything from training all K-3 teachers, principals, special education, and other relevant staff on the science of reading, ensuring that you have high quality, content-rich instructional materials, because the science of reading is not just on the decoding side, it's also on the comprehension side as well. And then the other piece is ensuring that you have high quality data systems and screeners to be able to ensure that kids are reading. And if they're not, uh, identifying that and then giving them the high quality instruction. So if you're pursuing the science of reading, you got to do all three of those buckets uh, or focus areas. Maryland has 24 districts that range from really big districts like Montgomery County, which has 165,000 students, to Little Garrett County, which has about 3,600 students. Normally, with any grant funding, the smallest districts get the smallest amount of money. Superintendent Chowdhury is ensuring that every district gets a base of funding. Everyone gets a uh automatic base. Everyone comes to the party with, if you're going to do two, you have to do two strategies at least of the seven. So you can choose which two you want to do. Um, so if you, if you choose to do two, automatically we are going to guarantee you $3 million um, out of the gate. And then we give a poverty multiplier effect based on Title I that is already pre-existing. And then we'll add in more as part of your base funding that you'll all get. And if districts pursue science of reading or grow your own teaching force, they get an additional $2 million from Maryland Leeds. This is a big deal because they've never gotten a base like uh, at that amount. So, um, and essentially I'm just saying is, do you want to leave this money at the table? You know, and, and hopefully not. And what's great is if, if they don't, if not all of them uh, pursue it, but I can tell you as of today, all 24 have shown up to all information sessions, they our, our strategy sessions have averaged 80 to 120 people. I come back to that tension again, the tension of requiring everyone to do something versus giving them a menu of choices that all are great choices. Um, and then you can choose which uh, choices you want to pursue and then ultimately get funding for. Now, the getting the grant is not a cakewalk. You have to um, attend the information sessions. Then you have to attend the strategy session. So if you're going to do Grow Your Own and, and Science of Reading, you have to attend those strategy sessions. And then we also have office hours. And so essentially we have an inf information sessions that everyone needs to attend who wants to submit a proposal. You have to attend the strategy sessions. That's a deep dive 
into that one of those seven strategies if you're going to submit a plan for it. So even if you're interested, you got to show up to that. And then we have office hours to help uh, applicants to uh, our school systems to further flesh out their concepts. And so when it's time to submit a plan, they've gone through that entire uh, set of experiences versus just publishing a document and say, hey, submit the plan by the by the deadline. And that's not all. One of the things ends up happening, you wrote an awesome plan on a document and then you go and start and things are not going well and you don't pivot, you don't make smart pivots. And so we want to make sure that school systems are meeting with other colleagues. And one of the benefits of being the state superintendent is I get to set a table and folks uh, will come (laughs) to the table. And so that's something we're going to do throughout the grant implementation period. And then we plan to do a middle of the year report that we want to get from our school systems to see how they're doing in their implementation process. And then the goal is for all of this to converge in summer of 24, where we will do a conference, a Maryland Leads conference to share about what has transpired since they pursued these strategies. So that's how I essentially designed this grant experience to both empower our school systems to step up Um, but also let everyone know this will be a department that is not just going to hang around and say, good luck, local control. No, we will uh, uh, fulfill our obligation to be a harbinger of best practices and inspire folks um, and hold accountable. It's both of those tensions at the same time. Maria Navarro, superintendent of Carroll County in Maryland, is welcoming this approach. So when I think about the possibilities of having us all, meaning having all school systems work together, one of the promising opportunities that the Maryland LEADS grant can bring for the school system is the opportunity to to do something that we tell principals to do every single time, which is you need to support and expand your professional learning communities in your building. It is extremely important that teachers get together, they learn from each other, they exchange data, they look at the progress of their students and they work together. And I think by bringing the school systems together, we get to do those kinds of things at the state level. I want to sit across the table and have instructional educational conversations with my peers about what other school systems are doing to solve sort of the same areas. And if I may, I'm going to use your phrase, your kids are doing better than mine. What are you doing? We should be asking that question, not just for a principal to ask that question or teachers ask that question of each other or principals across schools, but also school systems ask that question of other school systems. By the way, she's referring to something I've written about repeatedly, which is that the most powerful question in education is, your kids are doing better than mine. What are you doing? This is a question that begins to expose and share expertise and can be asked at every level from the classroom to the state. And she's saying that she wants her principals and teachers to be able to do that. She appreciates the fact that the state superintendent is putting in place a system where she will be able to say to her fellow superintendents, your students are doing better than mine. What are you doing? When she and I talked, she and her team hadn't decided what strategies to pursue, but she expected to at least apply for the science of reading money. As we heard from the folks in Richmond and Winston-Salem, she's hoping that by dramatically improving reading instruction, students will be able to make up whatever ground they may have missed during the pandemic. 
ultimately the U.S. Department of Ed's direction on this was it has to be something that tackles learning loss. Well, we we got you on that. I think we'll we'll, we'll check that box off and more. Yeah. So this wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts. We heard about the approach two states are using to spend the federal COVID money both to address current issues as well as to prepare schools for the future. You've heard from thoughtful educators who have dedicated their professional lives to making schools work better for all kids. In our next and final episode, we're going to hear from some other folks who are doing yet more things with the ESSER money that seem worth noting. All in all, I hope you are hearing what I've been hearing. These are educators who are committed to applying what the field of education has been learning about schooling in the last couple of decades. They're not flailing wildly, hoping that some disruptive innovation will somehow magically improve schools, but are methodically and systematically attacking some of the weaknesses and inequities that have long existed, but were brutally exposed during the pandemic. I want to thank everyone at the Education Trust who has helped work on this podcast, and Mike Patillo of Tonal Park, who recorded and edited it and wrote the original music. And of course, thanks to the Wallace Foundation for providing support to make this podcast. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time. Mm-hmm.